I want to, uh, my, I guess I've been wanting to do this the last few weeks. Let me give you a little bird's eye view. If you're here for the first time or you've come maybe a couple times, give you a, a, a sense of where we are uh, as a church family. The last three weeks have been spent as a preparatory, as preparation for a summer, which may spill over into the fall, uh, a series on spiritual gifts. Uh, Scott preached the first one, and I preached the, the second two after that, really wanting to lay a good foundation for us before we moved on week by week, either considering one by itself, one gift, or possibly a couple. I think Scott is considering doing two, but we haven't landed on that yet. But we're going to spend the remainder of the summer and possibly on in the fall looking at some spiritual gifts by themselves, giving a Sunday to a spiritual gift. This Sunday is going to be given to the gift of service. Um, I, I want to give you an assignment over the remainder of the summer and into the fall as we go through this series. I want to encourage you over the summer and, and fall, however long this thing goes, to pray about and consider a gift that you may give someone. Now, I'm not talking figuratively. I'm talking about a real gift that you may give someone over the course of the summer or fall. Kind of a Christmas in July kind of concept here. Celebrating the Christ coming, the birth of the Christ child. We give gifts to one another, celebrating the gift that we have in Christ. So it kind of, Scott and I were thinking, man, it might be kind of cool this summer if we really were mindful of the gift that's been given us in the Holy Spirit, the gifts that have come as a result of the Holy Spirit that came at great cost of the cross, and that over the course of the summer that we might pray about and consider other needs in the body and consider a gift that you might bless somebody with. Here are some, uh, some rules. Okay, First of all, this isn't a rule. This is a guideline. Identify a need. Give a free gift to meet that need. Okay, now here's some rules. Make it special. Okay, no vacuum cleaners, guys, for your wives. If I hear of a guy that gives his wife a vacuum cleaner then I'm going to clobber you with the vacuum cleaner. I wouldn't do that, but uh, that's highly discouraged. Unless your wife just really is into cleaning and that's her thing and she really pines for a new vacuum cleaner. Ideally, it's not something that you have to use to do chores, but something that's, that they might need that would just bless them in a way that would be unique and special. So you have to pray about that and ask the Lord to give you some insight into what that might be. So the first rule is no vacuum cleaners for the gals, no fishing poles for the girls. Guys, don't give your wife a fishing pole, hoping to use that fishing pole when she gets tired of it, which she probably won't use it anyway. And you're really giving you get a gift to yourself. You have to give her something that's special if you give something to your wife. And that brings me to my next rule. Dudes, don't give a gift to someone else's wife. And gals, don't give a gift to someone else's husband. We don't want to invite a new counseling load here as a result of this. So stay within maybe marriage or at least if you're going outside of marriage, give as a couple to someone. Um, make sure it's not cheap. All right, and that doesn't necessarily mean monetarily. It may take time to make something that you make for somebody that may not have cost much, but it's something that was expensive time-wise. Make sure it's not cheap because the gifts that have been given us in the person of the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit came at great cost. So make sure it's something that's not cheap. 
I think in some ways this is going to be a beautiful application of Brad's message that he preached about a month ago, just before we began this series, and an opportunity for us over the course of the summer to celebrate the gifts that we have in the Holy Spirit and to consider that those gifts came at great, great cost and that they are for one another. That's the concept. So that's your assignment and that's the introduction for the sermon. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 13. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit more context as you're just to kind of fill up those moments that'll take you to find that spot in John chapter 13. Scott's first sermon in this series, or Scott's sermon three weeks ago, he preached from 1 Corinthians. And there's a, a really wonderful passage of scripture there, a chapter almost, that's dedicated to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of the passages in there has, I think, has at least guided me in how to tackle likely guiding Scott to some degree, if not completely, how to tackle these, these spiritual gifts each week and we gather. And the passage comes from 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's just been speaking of the spiritual gifts and been speaking about how each may have a gift or a couple of gifts or something like that for the benefit of the rest of the body. But he's described the body of the church body as the body of Christ. So one way to think about the spiritual gifts, when a church is exercising our spiritual gifts, when we've identified them and we're exercising them, we as a church family will look like Christ in Greenville. We're the body of Christ. People will see that church over there. Something is going on there. That helps me see what Jesus looks like. Because I see the full complement of the gifts. So think about Jesus in some ways as having the full complement of the gifts. So that concept leads me, or at least led me this Sunday, to go to Christ in a narrative, a story about Christ, that Christ, something that Christ did that'll help us understand service. He's a fitting place to go to and a, and a fitting person to go to. So John chapter 13, the passage I began the morning with is the passage we're going to be spending our time in, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read just a couple of verses and share a few thoughts, read a few more verses, share a few thoughts, sort of acquaint you with this passage, and then we're going to consider three things that we can draw from this passage about service. Now, context-wise, John chapter 13, this is the beginning of what's called the farewell discourse. And if you know how John unfolds, you know how the Gospels unfold, they're, toward the end of each of the Gospels is the Passion narrative. This is in front of the Passion narrative. This begins the night that Christ was crucified, or the, the night that he was arrested, the day before, the eve of his crucifixion. And the farewell discourse goes for chapters here where Jesus is sharing some really intimate, special things with his closest bunch of disciples. They are some of the most cherished chapters in the Bible for me because it's such an intimate and special time. He's going into the hours before the cross. He knows what he faces and he's sharing some very special things with them. So in some ways, we're treading on some holy ground right now, hours before Christ was crucified as he shared some beautiful things with his disciples. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
I want to draw out as we dive into this chapter this morning that Christ knew what was coming. He knew that his hour had come. He knew that the cross was imminent. It wasn't something that was going to catch him off guard. For me, sometimes knowing something hard is coming is worse than being caught by surprise. So in these hours, as the farewell discourse unfolds, know that Jesus had a full understanding of what was to unfold the next day. And it's in this context, knowing what's in store, that it says, he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. John is unique among our gospel writers. Well, he's not the only one that does this, but John does this especially, where he has double meanings to phrases. And the double meaning in loving them to the end is that he's going to love them to the end right up into the cross, to the end where hours later Jesus is going to say, it is finished, to that end. He's going to love them right on through that. But the double meaning, the second meaning there, he's going to love them to the uttermost. You will see the amount and kind and nature of his love in what unfolds, not just time-wise, but in depth and breadth. Even in his final agonizing hours, he loves them to the uttermost and to the end. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. We can add some things that Jesus knew to the list here. We already know first off, right from the first verse, that he knew that his hour had come. We can add to the list also that he knew that he'd be betrayed by one of his followers. This passage doesn't tell us that. It hints at it. But later on in the passage... He confirms he knew his betrayer. He wasn't caught off guard by that either. He knew that his hour had come. He knew that he sat there at a table with one man that would betray him. And the third thing that he knew that we know from this passage, knowing that the father had given him dominion. The phrase says that he had given all things into his hand. Now, if I were writing this story, I enjoy, let me just tell, to share with you, I really enjoy those moments in the Bible where you're reading it and it's complete plot twist that I didn't expect. It's a plot twist that I completely wouldn't expect. This is one of those moments. And for me, it's confirming that God's, or that this gospel is validated and authenticated by plot twists that man wouldn't make up. This is one of those moments. A plot twist that man wouldn't make up. Because if man were writing this story, here's how it might go down. Knowing that the father had given him dominion, knowing that he was going to be betrayed by one of his followers, he vanquished the enemy, destroying him and leaving him in a smoldering heap of ashes. That's how man would write it. That's how the movie would go, right? This might be another version. He destroyed Judas, giving him his due, calling out his dark heart in front of everyone else. Wouldn't that be satisfying? That's what man would write. That's how the movie would go. And that's kind of what I'm expecting. But that's not what follows. For those of you that wonder about this gospel, did man just make this up? Man would not write what's about to unfold about God, the son. Let's see what happens. In verse four, he rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Our versions do different things with different tenses. And sometimes they, they normalize the tenses in a passage so that they will be easier to read. But in the Greek language, there's some things that you can draw out that really help you appreciate the intent of the author. And this is one of those moments. In this passage where it says he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. You don't have to be an English guru to know that it's, you read that, he's talking past tense. Well, in the Greek, he's talking present tense. Here's how it would read in the original language. He rises from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And he, he, he invites some more present tenses into this story. And I want you to think about this. Have you ever heard anybody tell a story that they're really excited about? They might tell about something that happened, man, years ago, I, the craziest thing that ever happened to me, the craziest thing I ever did, we're all talking past tense. Well, I get this rock. I shift to present tense. And I throw this rock and it hits the window and the window explodes and I turn around and I'm running and I'm running present tense. And you can feel the, the suspense in the moment. And I think what's happening here in these tenses where John has shifted from past tense to present tense, this may be one of the most suspenseful moments for John as he's writing this book. I wonder if the manuscript was tear-stained as he's writing what's going down right now. It becomes present tense for him. It's vivid. He's reliving this moment as Christ rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments. And then, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he dresses like a slave. Man wouldn't write this story. He dresses like a slave. In verse 5, then he pours water into a basin and he washes, present tense, the disciples' feet and he wipes them with the towel that's wrapped around him. God the Son washes the disciples' feet. This is one of the most menial tasks that you could possibly imagine in that context. In fact, it's so menial that a Jew will not even allow another Jewish servant to do it. This task is so menial that they would only even let a Gentile servant wash Jewish feet. We won't even let a Jewish servant do such a thing. This was traditionally done at the beginning of a visit before the meal, and it would have been a very abrupt moment in the middle of this supper for Christ to rise, dress as a slave, and then wash these feet. A very abrupt and awkward moment. I want you to imagine, just to sort of take on the, 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 um, the, the experience of what this would have been like. Imagine a president that cleaned the restrooms in the White House the night before he's facing a personal trial. Man, wouldn't you marvel? Would that be all over the news? cleaning the restrooms at the White House. At least you get some idea of the condescension of God, first of all, to take on flesh and first of all, to even have a knee to bow. And then secondly, to bow the knee and to wash the feet of dirty, grimy fishermen and tax collectors. He comes to Simon Peter who said to him in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
We don't know what sequence unfolded. We don't know whose feet were washed before Simon Peter. But you get the sense the way he tells the story that Simon Peter wasn't the first one. And I wonder if it was silent leading up to Simon Peter. It must have been. John didn't say a word about anybody else's objections. Can you imagine that silence? The only thing they're hearing is water being sloshed around in the basin. The shuffle of clean feet. The towel drying the feet. It must have been a heavy silence. And he comes to Peter. And Peter wasn't one to do anything silent. And Peter objects in the strongest of ways. In the original language, he says, Lord, do you, my feet, wash? He objects in the strongest way possible. And Jesus in verse 7 says, what I'm doing, you do not understand how. But afterward, you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, I'm going to show you something later in the morning. And what seemed like an act of humility on Peter's part was actually an act of pride. Peter was too proud to submit to Christ's plan. I'll show you that later this morning. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Just as strongly as Peter objected, Jesus responded, Peter, if you don't submit to me cleansing you of your dirt, you're not mine and I'm not yours. Very strong response. Simon Peter said to him in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This is not an easy passage to make sense of, but what seems to be going on here. Jesus responds to Peter's wholehearted reversal with the encouragement that he needed nothing more than what Christ offered. He'd find complete cleansing in what was about to unfold hours later. He would find cleansing head, hands, and feet in the work that was about to go down. Jesus says, you'll be completely clean. This illustration of the foot washing was for the feet only and for the moment only to condition them to understand that the suffering servant that they were about to witness, they were about to see him sacrificed. It was a living parable of the servant work of the cross is what this moment is in John 13. In some ways, he says to Peter, Peter, all you need is what I give you, nothing more. In verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, you can imagine and feel the silence. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If the teacher and Lord can stoop to serve 
then they too should do the same with their peers even, which was also unheard of. In this parable, this living parable, he not only illustrated what was about to go down in the cross, but he modeled how his followers are to serve one another. Three things I want to draw out this morning from this passage. First of all, service is fueled by love. Remember in verse one, he says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. John sees that love as connected, not only to the foot washing, but to the cross. Listen to how it reads. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, he rises and he washes feet. This moment is connected to his love for them to the uttermost. Turn to Luke chapter 22. I only have a couple places for you to turn this morning, but this is one I want you to see. Luke chapter 22. Any chance we get to consider what Christ's love looks like in contrast to the world's love, we're going to do that. Because we are conditioned in our context, in this contemporary context, to love being something that we fall into, something that we get carried away with, something that involves the wind to our back. If it's true, it should be easy. How many of you thought that? How many of you seen that in movies? If it's true, it should be easy is the concept, today's concept of love. I want to give you a little bit of context. The other gospels give us different versions of this story. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, you can look right up the page and see we're talking about the farewell discourse. We're talking about the night of his arrest. We're talking about the Lord's Supper context. He's just fed them the supper in Luke's version. And look what happens in that context. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It really says that. I mean, can, can y'all just marvel with that with me for a moment? That, that it really actually says that? Let's read it again, just to marvel. A dispute also, okay, he's just fed them the Lord's Supper. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to go to the Pacific Northwest and see the redwoods and the sequoias. Unbelievable trees, unbelievable groves that you walk into. You walk through feeling like you're in a fairyland. Feeling like any moment a squirrel the size of a hippo is going to come running out just because you, everything feels massive. And I'll never forget walking through a grove of redwoods, marveling at the trees as I heard two kids running by me. Not my kids, mind you, because I I would have tended to this. 
but two kids running by me arguing about who's the tallest. Man, doesn't it make you laugh? Doesn't it make you marvel that someone would actually sit at the table with the king and argue about who's the greatest? The context for the foot washing can't be missed that these guys were glory thieves just like the rest of us. Man, that doesn't sound like a kind of love that you you fall into, that you just get carried away with because that's about the moment that I'm bailing. If my love for you is up until that moment where I see you arguing about who's greater, that's when I'm done loving you. If it's a human love, if it's a natural love, but this love is an altogether different kind of love. Think about it for a moment. These guys entered this meal without even a thought to wash one another's feet much less to wash their Savior's feet. They entered this meal arguing about who's the greatest, yet it's the feet of these glory thieves that Christ washes. The feet of these glory thieves that Jesus loved. It's these thieves that Jesus served Man, serving others is pretty easy when folks are humble, isn't it? When the folks that you're serving are really grateful and really deserving in some way. Isn't that easy? Let's be honest brokers here for a minute. You really, you kind of feel like they deserve it. But here's the reality. When you get to know others better, and this is the point where people bail on church a lot of times. But this is the point where it's just getting sweet. When you get to know other people well enough, you know that, man... Every single one of us is a hypocrite to some degree. And every single one of us struggles with selfishness. Every single one of us are glory thieves at our heart. Every single, in varying degrees, it's all there though. That's the moment moment where service presses on though. That's the moment where service presses on and love doesn't fall out. Love like Christ presses on and washes glory thieves' feet. Man, we're all hypocrites to some degree, and even the best of us deal with selfishness. One of the first things I think I ever learned to say was mine. And one of the things I said first and nobody ever had to even teach me was me first. Anybody else learn that early and easily? I think that's something that comes very natural But service presses on and serves anyway. It's not dependent on whether or not the served are deserving. It's not dependent on whether or not the deserved are grateful. It's not dependent on whether or not the the served are humble. Man, let's take it to a whole nother level because we don't have to leave it just right there because I want you to consider one pair of feet that were still sitting at that table. See, Judas hadn't left the table yet. Judas was still in the room when the foot washing went down. Consider that he washed the feet of a man that he knew was conspiring to betray him. Consider for a moment that when Judas left, when he ran off to the Sanhedrin, he had squeaky clean feet. 
Man, it's proof that we are to love our enemies as Christ has loved his. Christ's service to these men was really pretty indiscriminate. He shows us the kind of love we're talking about is the kind of love that's not dependent on how much the loved deserves it. This is the kind of love that fuels the kind of service that we're talking about this morning. The kind of service that all of us are called to. Man, that's an otherworldly kind of love. The second thing I want to draw out this morning is that service properly rendered displays the cross. I want you to consider for a moment if Christ's act of foot washing were simply about washing their stinky feet. Just play along with me for a minute. Imagine if it was just about the stinky feet. His threat to Peter would seem sort of over the top, wouldn't it? His threat to Peter in verse 8. Let me find that page because it'd be funny if you read it a different way. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If it's just about having smelly feet, it would be like, Peter, your feet are especially smelly. So if I don't wash them, if you don't let me wash them, I'm out. I'm done with you. (laughs) We've got to know this event was about so much more than just washing some feet. In his service to these disciples, Christ points Peter crossward and shows him this foot washing is a living parable of what's about to go down. He is about to stoop and he is about to cleanse the dirtiest folk of their dirtiest dirt. Amen? Anybody? Need some dirt cleaned? Anybody had some dirt cleaned? Man, his cross and his blood are going to make us clean. Head, hands, and feet. Head to toe. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All. Some of you need to hear that word, all. Some of you still carry around the baggage of past bad decisions. But Christ washed you head, hands, and feet. All. All. Man, he taught them something about what was about to go down. And for us, we look back and we see what went down. And serving others beautifully illustrates this cross and this work. As we stoop and tend to one another's dirt. Here's a salvation note for you. There are folks in this room right now that I know are struggling with salvation and belief. Struggling with faith, whether this stuff is real or not. This is something for you to consider. It requires a certain humility, not only to stoop and serve, but it requires a certain humility to be served. Peter's objection, his first one, was out of pride. I would ask for a show of hands if we weren't cross point, because cross point's funny about show of hands. You ask for a show of hands and only about three Uh, One out of three will actually raise their hand, though maybe all three should. Just kind of a non-communicative bunch. 
I'm okay with that. I'm the same way. I don't like to be prompted. I get it. But I wonder how many of you have ever had your feet washed as an application of this passage, not as a pedicure. It's an uncomfortable thing, isn't it? Hey, there's somebody raising your hand. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Man, I've had mine washed. And it is an awkward moment because we don't like other people to smell our stench and our dirt. Daniel McGraw is the only person in the world that I know that's okay with that. In our car, we'll be on a vacation and he doesn't wear socks with his shoes. Tenny runners, you know? So we'll get in the car and we got a long stretch. You know, we got four or five hours for you. You got to go to the bathroom. You better hold it. We're not stopping for another four hours. And Daniel, first thing he'll do is pull his shoes off. And we're like, is somebody dying here? What just happened? <laughs> Daniel pulled his shoes off. He doesn't care. But most of us care. Most of us care and don't like other people to see our dirt or smell our stench. And that's precisely what keeps so many people from enjoying the wonder of the cross. Because you have to humble yourself. There's a fear of being vulnerable and honest and open and humble enough to let Christ deal with our dirt. I hear it from some of you. It's an obstacle. But here's good news for you. That's what he does. That's what he's good at. There hadn't been feet too dirty for him yet. We need to let him do it. He proves here that he can handle it. The third thing I want you to consider this morning from this passage is that service is what we're all to do all the time. It's not just for the specially gifted among us. It's something that we're all to do all of the time. Notice that he gave this charge to all of his disciples. He didn't just pull a couple of them out and say, okay, now you are uniquely gifted, or you will be when the Holy Spirit comes seven weeks from now. You'll be uniquely gifted with a spiritual gift called service. So I want you to do what I'm doing. He tells all of them to do what he's doing. The beauty of this sermon is it's for everybody in the room. All of us should serve, and all of us should stoop. He stooped from the eternal, infinite distance of heaven to earth and from standing to kneeling, calling us to stoop about three to four feet from standing to kneeling. When you really take it in, he's only asked a fraction of us, an unmentionable, an unmeasurable fraction of what he's done for us. All of us, compelled by love, should put the cross on display by tending to one another's dirt. We owe it to each other. That may not have been a word that you were thinking of as I was describing this, as I was developing this, that we owe it to one another. Romans chapter 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We owe it to one another. It was about three years ago that we canceled our home phone service with AT&T. 
some, some of y'all have done that by now. You know, you just have your cell phone. And although we come to find out that our cell phone doesn't work in the house. So we have to step outside in 112 degree temperature and make our phone calls. So if we don't return phone calls and it's midday, you know why. Because I'm not going outside to call you back. But we, we canceled, we ended our home phone service that we had for about 10 years. We've lived here 13 years. <clears throat> and for 10 years of our life in Greenville, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, we got a call for a guy named Romero. And we're like, hey, Romero doesn't live here. Well, we are trying to collect on something that Romero owes. Apparently Romero owed lots of people. <laughs> And what's funny to me is I'm saying, well, you realize people can change their phone number, right? You realize when people move, they get a new phone number and we must have gotten Romero's. Romero is long gone. Stop calling here. This went on for 10 years. I mean, 10 years. Romero owed lots of folks. And my encouragement to you this morning, don't be Romero. Oh, and everybody in town, but not paying. You owe one another this kind of love that serves. You're called to it. You're commanded to it. He modeled it for you. It's what we're all to do. And it's what we're all to do all the time. It's not to be reserved for the easy to serve. I've already developed that, but listen to this. It's not to be reserved for when it's easy to serve. I'm gonna read that sentence again because I want you to get it. It's not to be reserved for the easy to serve. And it's not to be reserved when it's easy to serve. Consider the timing of what Christ did here in this narrative that we just considered. Consider that Christ waited till he knew his hour had come. How many times could he have washed their feet before then? Three-year ministry? And he waits until the night before he's nailed to a cross. How many times had they had dirty feet? How many times had they eaten together in three years? But he waits until he knows his hour had come. Because his service in that hour was potent. He waited till his hour of anguish. We know it's an hour of anguish by how he prays in Gethsemane a few hours later. Yet it's here that he serves. His service was especially potent in light of the timing. And the beauty for us, when we serve out of our times of trial and difficulty, in our times of trial and difficulty, guess what? Our service is especially potent too. People don't miss that. He or she or they are going through this right now and here they serve me. How humbling, how beautiful, how edifying, how that builds me up. How potent that service. What an opportunity you have in your trial to serve others and look like Christ who waited to the eve of his cross to serve. Here's the wonderful good news about it too. When you take your hands and your eyes and your concerns and your struggles off of that moment of trial and you serve somebody else out of that moment of trial, oftentimes when you go back to it, you have a new set of eyes. Not only are you different, but oftentimes Jesus has done something to that trial 
and it won't even be in the same place. It's not true every time. But if you can pry your focus off your trial long enough to serve one another, you'll oftentimes find that Christ blessed that trial and blessed you in a way that it wouldn't have if you just stayed focused on your problem. It's not uncommon for him to tend to your mess when you serve to others. You may find it sorted a bit when you come back to it. The supper this morning, I want to take you to a passage in Luke chapter 12. I'd like for you to turn there because I want you to see this. It's a beautiful passage and it's one that we're going to consider as we take the supper together. You have to pay attention to to not miss what's being said here. It's a parable. And parables, they have a point that oftentimes is right in the middle of it. You can see it, you can touch it. But there's something else implied here in this parable that's interesting. Something that we can learn about our Savior. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants. Okay, notice that he's speaking of his followers like they're servants. Okay? It's a concept that should have been familiar to him at the moment that he washes their feet. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, when the master comes and finds them awake, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or on the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He is speaking about his return. And it's coming at a time that you do not expect. And he uses this parable of the master of the house being the Son of Man and of his followers being the servants. And he says, the faithful servants are awake and serving because that's what servants do but listen what he tells them about himself there's some sense that when Christ comes back that in eternity he will continue to serve don't miss what this is about this passage is about his return it says when he comes back he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them that's the kind of savior that we have it wasn't out of character for what he did on this passage in John 13 it's who he is and it's who you're supposed to be as his follower as one of his. It's not something we just do between now and we die. It's something apparently we'll be for eternity serving one another, being served by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Man wouldn't make this up. Man, as we distribute these elements, as you are served the elements, and as you serve together, consider 
that we have a Lord and Savior that by nature is serving, is a servant, and it's what he's called us to. Let's distribute the elements.